This morning we're going to take some time with eight verses in the 14th stanza of this psalm, beginning with verse 105. You might notice the heading there. This could be called the sister's stanza. The heading is none. See that at the sisters? You could say the next stanza is second to none. One that follows. Wow. <laughs> Tough barn. Of course, if I kept these all to myself, you'd be none the wiser. <laughs> yeah, why should I, should I try that? I'm sorry. Puns are just a force of habit for me. There's nothing really abnormal about them. Maybe a bit unconventional. I'll stop there. <laughs> Yeah, we do. Okay, nonetheless, the letter none here at the top of this section in Psalm 119 is simply the 14th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, that each one of these eight-verse eight stanzas or octaves begins with a letter. And I mean every line begins with that letter. So Aleph, beginning with the letter Aleph, all the way through eight verses, and then Bet, eight verses beginning with Bet. So it's a marvelously constructed psalm that we wouldn't see unless we knew Hebrew. And I just wanted to point that out. Beginning in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. Father, what a marvelous section. What an amazing psalm. And, and we just praise you for the, the inspiration of it. We praise you for the content here. For your word, Father, that you chose to give to us. We are amazed and we marvel at the fact that your word is so consistent. And it's established. We talked about last week, Lord, that it is firm. We can trust in it that it's right and true and pure and all of this. And we love, Lord, that we have a place to go where we can find answers in crises and, and even in, in good times, Lord, a, a sense of direction from You. We're amazed at how You broke through the boundaries of time and prophetically revealed to us Your Word and proved the, valid, the validity of Your Word through prophecy and through the truth of all that's expressed even today. And we worship You having received a great knowledge. And we pray, Father, we would not be among those who lack knowledge. You said my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So we pray that You would fill our heads with Your Word and fill our hearts with Your Word. And that Your Spirit, Lord, would breathe life into all of this for us, that we might know how to better walk the path to home. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 105, is probably the most well-known verse of this psalm. If you haven't heard it before, let me read it to you again. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, as we sang earlier this morning. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Not only is this verse one of the most famous from the psalm, but it's one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture. 
And it has a great connection. In fact, the psalm, Psalm 119 begins, look back at verse 1. And listen to the correlation. Of the word that's a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Well, he began the psalm by writing, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Down in verse 9, he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And there's an interesting undercurrent that flows throughout Psalm 119. It's the great psalm of the word. So it's about the Word of God and, and, and the glory of the Word of God and what God's Word does and, and how it impacts our lives. But more than that, there's an undercurrent that flows teaching us how to walk in the way of the Word. To stay on path with the Lord. And that's critical for us because we are wanderers. We have such a tendency to get off path or to go in the wrong direction. And so what this psalm is about is is proclaiming the greatness of the Word, but also showing us, revealing to us, how the Word keeps us on path. Now, last week we considered ten synonyms. I'm sure you all can recall these right off the top of your head. Ten synonyms for the Word of God that are found here in this psalm. What you Bible students already know is that every single verse of this psalm, of the 176 verses, every verse has a synonym for the Word of God in it. Every one. Except for Psalm 119, verse 122. The one exception. Look at that verse just for a moment. little side note. I'm I'm not going to charge anyone for this. You get this for free this morning. Kind of a bonus. Verse 122. The only verse that does not contain a specific reference to or mention of the Word of God. Listen. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. It's the only one. Now, did the psalmist just miss it? You know, trying so hard to mention God's Word in every verse as he goes through and somehow he just got a little overwhelmed and skipped on and continues in verse 123 and forward. Or is there a reason that that one verse does not contain mention of the Word? I think there is. Let me read it again. Be surety for your servant for good. The word surety in the Hebrew is literally pledge. Be my pledge. Give me a pledge for your servant for good. Lord, my pledge. Here's the deal, gang. Why is the word not mentioned in this verse? Because the word is not my pledge. Huh? The word is not my assurance. Oh, the word is assuring, don't get me wrong. And the word speaks of salvation, absolutely. And the word gives us direction as to how to be saved, how to know that we're saved. But the word is not the pledge that God has given us for salvation. The word is not the thing that absolutely confirms beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am saved. My pledge, gang, is the Spirit. And Paul says so in Ephesians 1.13, after listening to the message of truth, note that, After hearing the word, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. As a pledge. That you know, that you know, that you know that you are saved, that you're going to heaven, that you have a heavenly home in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the pledge. Well, how does that work? Paul says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's how you know. Why? So that's not really something I do. No, it's not. It's something the Lord does for you when you're saved that you know 
that you have a home. It is so critical. I, I've shared things like this before. We've talked about the assurance of our salvation and the pledge of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you the one thing more than anything else that, that breaks my heart. As a pastor, it's the thought that one person sitting in here right now isn't sure they're saved. Or worse yet, that one person sitting in here right now isn't saved. Well, how can that be? We're at church. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, going to church doesn't mean you're saved any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Right? <laughs> Just because you're here is not your assurance. That is not your pledge. Just because you have a Bible, that is not your pledge. The pledge is the Spirit of the living Christ in you confirming to your heart you are saved. And if you don't know that this morning, I beg you not to leave here without talking to me or one of our elders or grabbing someone and saying, I want to know I'm saved. How do I do that? Because salvation is absolutely key. I'll come back to that thought. But I, thought, I found it interesting out of this whole psalm, that's the one, the word of assurance, that pledge, is the Spirit of God who confirms in our hearts that we are saved. Now the other 175 verses in this psalm, all about the word. And we talked about those ten synonyms, two of which are derek, which means way, and orah, which means path. Way and path. And usually in this psalm, especially in the New American Standard Bible, path is just translated way. So throughout it you see way, and it could be orah, or it could be derek. They're two words that kind of have the same meaning, used interchangeably. But you come to verse 105, and suddenly a word is inserted that's not used anywhere else here. And that is the word path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's not direct. It's not orah. It's nativ. I know that's critical for you to understand, the word nativ. But it is powerful in meaning because nativ doesn't refer to the way of the Lord or the path of the Lord necessarily. It is a footpath by which someone travels physically or morally. But listen, a footpath they have chosen to walk. That's nativ. In other words, this is a path that you choose. And it can go either direction. A pathway of choice. It's a picture. Think about that. You know, there are a lot of famous paintings and and photographs of pathways going off into the distance or possibly tree-lined on either side or off into the haze or whatever. This idea of walking a path, of, of walking a trail, is poetic to us. And here it describes a choice. Proverbs 12.28 says, In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Nativ, pathway. Isaiah 42.16 The Lord says, I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. A path of choice. Should you choose to walk my path, the Lord says, I'll lead you. I'll shed light on this for you if you choose to walk in the way of the Lord. You don't have to. There's another path. But the path of the Lord is one that's delightful. It's a delightful path. On the good side, it's called the way of wisdom. Proverbs 3.17, talking about wisdom, says her ways are pleasant and all her paths are peace. Way of wisdom. It's a journey of justice on the delightful path of the Lord, should you choose it. Proverbs 8, verse 20 says, I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. It is a lane well lit. Job 24, 13. Job writes, Others have been with those who rebel against the light. They do not want to know its ways or abide in its paths. It is a path of light, the path of the Lord. 
Wisdom, justice, light, so many things can be found on the path of the Lord that are delightful. But you don't have to choose that path. You don't have to walk that path. You have an opportunity to choose another path, the path of depravity. You can go, as the great theologian Fleetwood Mac saying, you can go your own way. You can head your own direction. The footpath of your choice can be the footpath of delight or the footpath of depravity. But gang, if you choose depravity, understand it is the street of the sinner. And this is what Solomon warns. Proverbs 1.15 My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. The street of the sinner. It's the circuit of seduction. Solomon says in Proverbs 7.25, Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Speaking of the adulteress or the call of lust that would draw you away from the path of the Lord. It is the toll road gang of separation from God. And there is a price to pay. Which is why I call it a toll road. Isaiah 59 verse 8 says, They do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Those of you who have walked for a ways, let me just ask you this question. Who of us, by choosing the way of sin, have ever found peace there? You know, you live any amount of time in this world and you can look back and realize choices that you made, paths that you went down, that were sin choices and rebellious, and at the time seemed fun or exciting or cool or inviting, but when you head down those paths at this point in life, you look back and go, man, that was stupid. Man, that was stressful. All I had was doubt and anxiety and fear trying to hold my life together in that place. That's where the darker path leads, the path of depravity. And anyone who's lived any amount of time can tell you that. Younger people can say, hey, you can choose that path. You do have that right, that opportunity. But guaranteed you will not find peace there. If you want peace, there is one path to choose. And it's the path of the Lord. The pathway of delight. Two footpaths, two moral passages. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So you might ask, well, how do I really know? How how do I choose that that path rightly? Because, you know, Satan is a master disguiser and he can make his path look awfully good, awfully inviting. He can make it look comparably inviting, you know, to the path of the Lord. How do I know? God said in Jeremiah 6.16, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. And he's talking about his word. The Word of God. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, years ago I heard Dobson quote this verse saying, look, it's not a spotlight shining way out ahead of us. It's a lantern, a lamp for my feet. A lantern shining one step at a time. And he makes an interesting point. It's a little light for your feet that that helps you each step of the way I I compare it to the path that I walk from my house every Wednesday night. It's a nice little path through the forest there and and on over to the Gilmore's property. And and as I walk that in the summertime, it's very well lit. It's nice. It's easy to see. Going home after Bible study, even at 9 or 9.30, it's light outside. No problem. Besides, the horses are down by the pond in the summertime. In the wintertime, it's dark. It's impossible to see. And it's a minefield of manure out there. (laughs) And I 
I walk that path very carefully. <laughs> and I carry with me a little pin light. It's about that big and it's pretty bright, but it gives me maybe a foot, maybe two feet out in front of me, similar to the Word. It's, it's a lamp to my feet. Not a bright spotlight. The word lamp here in the Hebrew is near, and this is it. This is the lamp that he's talking about. This is the the type of little red clay lamp that they used all the time. In Jesus' day and all the way back to the times of David, this is a near. Near. It's the lamp to my feet. It's got a little wick in it, and inside it holds enough oil, usually for about a day, which is interesting because God also gave manna for about a day. So it's light for about a, a day or so. And when it was lit, the people would take these little lamps and they had shelves all around the rooms in their homes and they would set them on it. Several of these then could light a room. And if you're going from one room to the next, you just grab one of these and kind of hold it out in front of you to wherever you're going, put it up on a shelf, you're good to go. Completely changes the whole electricity and light switch thing. So if things really come down in our world, I got a few of these we can pass around. (laughs) Psalm 18 verse 28 says, You light my lamp. The Lord God illumines my darkness. You, you light my, my near, my, my little lamp. You light it, Father. You know what's great about these things? They don't give a lot of light. But you cannot help but once you light these things, you can't help but see that darkness flees away from them. As is the case with any light, no matter how dim, darkness doesn't invade light. Light pierces darkness. Light pushes darkness out and away. And even the smallest of tea lights send the darkness scurrying. And the Word functions this way. There are times, you know, I'm walking along, I just, I, know, I need to know the next step, Lord. I'm not looking out to the future, I'm not thinking about five years, ten years, twenty years, eternity. I just, tomorrow, I don't know what to do in this decision. The Word is a lamp to my feet. I get one step and He shows me where I'm stepping so that I can avoid the muck and, mono- and mire and manure you know, of the world. So I'm not stepping in that stuff and messing it up. And the Lord provides this, His Word, a lamp to our feet. Now, check this out. As many of us who are in the Word of God, when we gather together, we're like that house in the Jewish home. Each one of us, our lamp, we start to place them on the shelves and suddenly you get 10, 15, 20 little lamps in there and that room's pretty bright. Which is what happens when people in the Word come together in fellowship. The light gets brighter. That's why I love to hang out with people who are in the Word of God. who, Who love the Word of God. Who like to proclaim the Word and talk about the Word. It's encouraging to me and the world is brighter and things look better and I can see more clearly where I'm going. That's why I love our fellowship. It's because we share the Word together. And we we have insight that we wouldn't have otherwise. I need this little light for my feet. You see, I I can end up on the path of God. I can choose that path, be walking on it, but just because I'm on the path doesn't mean that I'm walking the right direction. I mean, I could be scooting off to the side, getting called away to other things. I could be turning around and going back the other way. And yet on that path... And I love what Pastor Les says about this. You want to know what someone believes? Watch where their feet go. Watch where they walk. It's obvious then. What a great picture. This little lamp for our feet. It's, it's a great picture for the church today. A picture that when we're gathered together and we are gathered in the Word by the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, man, we light up a dark place. And when people see love that is shared among us, Jesus says, if you know, they'll know you're my disciples by how much you love one another, how much you love each other. And Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels and near. We have this treasure in these little jars of clay. And 
these little jars of clay lit with the oil of the Holy Spirit and placed together in the room makes a difference in the world. It lights the place up. But the Lord is not just a little lamp to my feet. And this is where I, I disagree a bit with Dobson. Yeah, it's a lamp. It's like a little lantern to show me the way, footstep by footstep. But it's also a light to my path. And the word light there, gang, is huge. The word is a light to my path. The Hebrew word is or. And it means bright, clear, floodlight. It's even used to describe the light of day. The word or, the light to my path, is the word used in Genesis 1-3 when God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now do you think that was a little lamp to the feet? When God said, Let there be light, suddenly the darkness everywhere fled away. And this is the word even used to describe God Himself. Isaiah 10, verse 17, he's called the light of Israel. The light, the ore of Israel. The bright, shining light of Israel. By contrast, David, in 2 Samuel 21, 17, David is called the lamp of Israel. Okay? Little David. King David is a lamp. A lamp. God is the light. And that light is bright. And note this gang, 1 John 1.5, this is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you. God is light, and in, in Him there is no darkness at all. Or is the Word. God is light. Now I remember as a kid driving home late down Interstate 5 in Southern California, when suddenly a huge spotlight would just go, turn on another one, you know, and as you're driving, you see this light and you know something's happening over there. And it, used, it was used a lot more in the past than, than it is now, but it used to show like movies or cinema or, or, or some special event that was happening. I think mostly it's now just for car lots, but it used to be a big deal. A circus would roll into town. Those floodlights would shoot up. And I remember driving down the freeway and going, I want to see what's happening there. I want... Dad, can we pull over and see? And my dad would be like, I go home. And I want to see what's happening over there. This floodlight shoots out in front of us. Listen, while the word is both a little lamp for our feet, one step at a time, it's also a floodlight of prophecy out across the entire path, showing us where we're headed. Long distance where we're headed. Highlighting the future and inviting our choice. It is a light. This should open eyes wide. Peter put it this way, 2 Peter 1.19. We have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Did you know nearly a third of the Bible is prophecy? No other book can claim that. Nearly a third of all Scripture in the Bible is prophecy. That is spoken before it happened to be fulfilled at another time. And over half of that was fulfilled literally in Jesus' first coming. Let me ask you, the half that hasn't yet been fulfilled that speaks of His second coming, do you think it will be fulfilled allegorically? Or perhaps the same way the first half was fulfilled literally? Well, that's what I believe. And it's exciting to be able to look out, to see ahead. Boy, you mentioned prophecy. I remember when we were studying through the book of Matthew and and I said, hey, Wednesday night we're going to be in Matthew 24 and Jesus is going to highlight His second coming and the whole thing, so if you would like to come. And that night it was packed in here because we hear prophecy, light for the path so that we can see where we're going and, and we get excited about that. I may have shared with you, I've got a group of homeschoolers that come over to my house at 2 o'clock every Friday. 
And, and by the way, if, if you happen to be a homeschool student or you're off school at two on Fridays and you want to be part of this, any of you are welcome, kids. It's uh, about ages 12 to 16, 17, somewhere in there. But we've been gathering together and we've been going through the Truth Project. And we've been walking through it. And, and to be honest, I, I look forward to having the kids there, but, but you know, it's, it's time out of my Friday. And through the fall as we were doing that, it, it'd be like 1.30 and I'd be studying and, and I'd look up 1.30, oh, okay, got studying done and they're going to be here in half an hour and they show up and I'd put in the Truth Project and, you know, sometimes I would continue studying in the background while they're doing that. After Christmas, we, we started, started to stick in the Truth Project again and I don't even remember who it was, but one of them raised their hand and said, Rick, didn't you say you were going to talk to us about Revelation at some point? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Yeah, but could, could we do that? And I'm like, why? Well, I'm, I'm not prepared right now. Well, just, just tell us what you know. And I'm like, okay, all right. The last three Fridays, we've been in the book of Revelation, and we are having a ball. It is amazing. We took out a piece of paper and rolled it out across the coffee table, and I got a big ink pen and just started drawing it out. We drew a timeline. What does the Bible say about this? And what does it look like? And here's the verses. And these kids are learning Revelation. And they're getting it, and they're excited. In fact, Lydia Daly, Lydia, there you are. I'm sorry, I got to share this. Cracked me up. I have been describing the rapture to them and what it meant. Raptus in the Latin, you know, meaning caught up, and it's the word harpazo in the Greek, and it's their First Thessalonians 4:17, talking about how the church is going to be caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds. And we're talking about this, and her eyes got big, and she goes, "Man, we're going to be popping like daisies." <laughs> so there you go. Someone says, "What is the rapture?" It means we're going to pop like daisies. I think is what, what Lydia was sharing. And I love that, and it's, and it's, it's exciting, you know, to be in that and to be looking out, to, to just, you know, turn on that light that goes out across the path into the distance. So we know where we're going. We know what is coming. Jesus doesn't want you to be in the dark. But listen, for all this great light that the Scriptures have for us, that the Lord provides for us, for all this light... The enemy of truth wants nothing more than to extinguish it. He just wants to turn it off. And he works hard at doing so. 2 Corinthians 4.3 Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that's a bit discouraging to me. That Satan's out there trying to blind, trying to turn off the light as much as we're trying to be light in the world. He's trying to shut it down, especially among people who don't believe. And I think, so what do we do? How do we respond to that? We proclaim the light of the Word. We have the light for our, the lamp for our feet, the light for our path. You've got it in your laps. Learn it and know it and proclaim it in this world. But if you don't have the Word in you, you can't let the light out. If you don't know the Word of God, you've got no answer for people who are dying in their blindness, who are lost, and who are going to hell today. And that, man, that should do something to our hearts. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That bright light, the or light, that is talked about in verse 105. But Jesus also said, nor does anyone put a lamp, that little lamp, under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. We're both. The Word is both. The little lamp to the feet, the bright light to the future, and to out before us, it's both. And when you have the Word in you, you have both. You can shine the light of truth out to the distance, but if someone comes along and they're struggling, man, you pull out the little lamp and say, well, let me show you what a good decision is here. 
So scripture says, the choice that you have to make for this deal tomorrow, here, let's take a look. And you've got both going on. But again, if you lack the oil of the Spirit, if the Word is not in you, you can't let the light out. You realize that a good reason why we gather together in Bible study has nothing to do with us? Hey, it's great to get the Word in our minds and and our hearts and to to grapple with and discuss God's Word for us and it's blessing us and it's encouraging, but there are lost people who desperately need the Word and they will not hear it if we don't have it. When we gather together, Sundays, Wednesdays, any other time and open up the Bible, would you please always remember that a vast, large majority of why we do this is for people who are not here. People who don't know Jesus. I mean, I think the more I can know this, the more I'll have to share to those who need to know it. Now, by the way, the the light can sometimes be a little bright for those residing in the dark. Like me and Anna Marie in the morning. Anna Marie is light girl. I mean, the second her head pops off her pillow, every light in the house needs to be on. (laughs) And it's bright. She turns it all the way up. You know, I come out this morning. She went to first service with Hannah and I, and, and, and I walk out, and she's turned on the living room light, and we have a little fader on it, you know. When I get up on Sunday mornings, I'll turn the light on, fade her down, until I can get my tea. I have a little breakfast and then I'll turn it up a little bit more and have a little more than, you know. She comes out. I came out of the bathroom. Oh, come on. I'm Reese. Great. Huge. What's going on, girl? And that's, that's her. And that's the way the unbelieving world is to the light sometimes. Come on. That's too bright. Turn that down. As in... Alabama Governor Robert Bentley having to apologize for making Christian comments this last week. If you haven't heard this, you're going to love it. Governor Robert Bentley of Alabama met with religious leaders and issued an apology today for saying after his inauguration Monday that he wished non-Christians would become his brothers and sisters in Christ. He had to apologize. Several civil rights groups said the comments Bentley, a Republican, made at church service following his inauguration, were offensive and tantamount to proselytizing. Here's a hint for you. That's what we're about, proselytizing. That is what we're called to do. Make disciples. To, to show the unbelieving, the lost world, who Jesus is, and to invite them to be brothers and sisters of ours in Christ Jesus. When, when did proselytizing become a bad word? When did inviting someone to know the truth become bad? And yet in our culture, apparently, it's offensive now. If anyone, he said, from other religions felt disenfranchised by my language, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I offended anyone in any way. Disenfranchised? Listen, if you don't know Jesus, you have disenfranchised yourself. And we don't want that. I don't want that. I want you franchised. I want you part of this. I would agree wholeheartedly with this governor and say, you need to know Jesus and I want you to be my brother, my sister in Christ Jesus. And if you don't know him, you're not, but I want you to be. Listen exactly to his wording. This is what so offended civil rights groups. Addressing a crowd Monday at Dexter Avenue King Memorial Church in Montgomery, the new governor said, Anybody here today who has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, I'm telling you, you're not my brother and you're not my sister, but I want to be your brother. Boy, that is offensive, isn't it? He said, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, that makes you my brothers and sisters. Anyone who has not accepted Jesus, I want to be your brother. And this 
is offensive. Welcome to America 2011. Following the initial comments, uh, many civil rights groups objected to the comments and called upon the governor to apologize. I found this interesting that the uh, Montgomery rabbi, Elliot Stevens, said, I don't think the governor meant anything negative. Well, good for you, rabbi. (laughs) The uh, regional director of the Anti-Defamation League, Bill Niggett, said, it is stunning to me that he'd make those remarks. I make those remarks every Sunday in here in the barn. It's distressing because of the suggestion that he feels that people who aren't Christian are not entitled to love and respect. That's not what he said. He said, you're not my brother or sister and I want you to be. Talk about love and respect. He cares enough to make a comment like that. David Silverman, president of American Atheists, said, the gov- <laughs> You guys are funny. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Hello, Dave? <laughs> Listen to this. The governor basically said, this is the guy saying, if you're not like me, you're second class. And then he said this, American Atheist President, this man puts the Bible above the Constitution. Amen! (laughs) Right on! Preach it, Dave! (laughs) And he puts his preacher above the President. Again, hallelujah! (laughs) No, don't do that. Well, no, no. And then he said his words are disgusting and bigoted and reinforce Alabama's reputation for being backward because he wants to shine the light. This governor came out, turned on the light, and people went, too bright. Understand that's going to happen, but my friends, don't apologize for it. Guess what? Their eyes will adjust. And then they'll see clearly. And I love in in this same situation, almost exact same situation in the first century, Peter and John got pulled up before the Pharisees because the light was too bright. And the Pharisees said, you stop talking about Jesus. And they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You can't shut up, man. You can tell us all you want to stop proselytizing, but it's going to continue. And the church today that covers the globe is because those guys wouldn't quit. Because they determined to be light for the world and even lamps in dark places. That is our calling. Psalm 119, verse 105. Now, we're going to spend about as much time, it was 34 minutes, so we'll spend about that much time on each verse and be out of here by dinner time, I think. Verse 106. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I've sworn it. I swear, Lord, I'm going to keep your word. I make an oath. I will keep your word. I will shine your light. And and churches even do that. Come on in and sign the membership covenant that says you're going to do this, 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 and this. And it's amazing because those covenants don't work. They don't make you more faithful. The law never makes you more faithful. So what are you saying, Rick? Well, I'm saying the psalmist is saying that he swore and confirms that he's going to keep the word. Didn't Jesus, didn't Jesus say that yeah, you shouldn't do that? Matthew 5.33, Jesus said, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Don't swear by anything. Heaven, earth, in between, don't swear by it. He says, let your statement be yes Yes or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. 
And you might say, well, why not, like the psalmist, vow to keep his word? Swear that you're going to keep his word. Well, I don't think, first of all, the psalmist is really doing that. What? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but note down at the end of verse 11, he says, I have inherited your testimonies forever. They are the joy of my heart. It's like marriage. Okay? You make a vow when you get married. It is not the vow that keeps your marriage together. You know, it's not the piece of paper. It, it, husbands, when was the last time you were arguing with your wife and you ran and you got the marriage certificate? With... <laughs> right here. In sickness or in health? <clears throat> Do your part. This is not what makes the marriage strong. Well, what is it then? Love. And love is not how you feel. It is that unconditional commitment to the marriage. And that's what we're talking about here. When he says, man, I I swear, Lord, I have sworn and I will confirm it. He is speaking out of a heart that loves God and love always is stronger than law. It's not swearing by law. It's swearing, it's declaring by love because the bonds of love are solid and are strong. And if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, if you're in a love relationship with Him, guess what? You've already made the vow. I did? When did I do that? Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. It's a done deal. Now understand, I've shared this before, Jesus is not saying, if you love Me, you better show it by keeping My commandments. Now what He says. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. It's going to flow right out of your love. It's not going to be an issue. You're not going to have to struggle or, or stress about it. You just, you're going to. Do you love the Lord Jesus? And if you truly love Him, you're going to keep His commandments even more than your own desires. Don't do what you do legalistically. Do it lovingly as unto Him. Verse 107. He says, I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Down in verse 109, he says, My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. He's not returning to despair here. This is not going back to the midnight of the psalm that we talked about before. The psalmist here is recognizing that even for his afflictions and his own weak hands, he says, My life is in my hand. It's not a very good place. He recognizes that his life, his revival, the quickening of his spirit, is by the Word of God. Now, it's important to understand this, gang. Twelve times in Psalm 119 alone, twelve times here, we see a direct connection between the Word of God and the revival of the psalmist. I've got to make a statement about revivals here. To the psalmist, and I believe this was David... To David, revival was not about a grand church party. Revival was not about gathering hundreds of thousands of people in a great auditorium, having great music, having an evangelist speak, and having people weeping and on their knees and rolling around and having all kinds of bizarre experiences. That wasn't revival to David. Revival to David was survival. Understand this. When he says, revive me, he's saying, save my life. Revival, according to the Word of God, is about saving lives, not about church fun. Not about experiential stuff. 
Now, I'm not trying to hammer or, or belittle times when, when, when churches have been gathered and worshiping and the worship is just amazing and overwhelming and the, and the Holy Spirit is healing. I'm not, I'm not anti that. I'm not going against that. What I'm saying is, I think we've drifted a bit from what true revival is. Even back in the great awakening of our country, that revival, you know how people knew revival was happening? They were getting saved. Lives were being saved. People were passing from death to life as they gave their life to Jesus Christ. And it spread out across the colonies as people realized there is a Jesus. He does love me and He brings me life. Revival. Not, not what we keep seeing on TV. If you're praying for revival, you know what you're praying for? Salvation for the lost people in this area. That's revival. That's what I pray for. That is what I hope for and long for until Jesus comes that we will see a revival. That is, dead lives come to life. That's what He did in me. That's what He does to everybody who gives their life to Him. Revival. And the psalmist is saying, I'm afflicted. Revive me. Bring me back to life. Quicken my spirit. How, David? According to Your Word, Lord. Because wherever there's true revival, the Word of God is being preached without shame. That's where revival happens. And of course, where the word is preached, there's going to be worship. Verse 108, Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. What does he mean by this? The Hebrew writer puts it this way for us. Hebrews 13, 15, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. The free will offering of the psalmist is worship. Because the effect of the word of God is the worship of God. We talked about Wednesday, if you're in the Word, worship is going to eventually come busting out. You cannot hold it back when you see, when you know, when you're experiencing what God is doing in His Word. In fact, you Bible students know the psalm explodes at the end in a cry of praise and worship. He's been running along for 168 verses. Go to Psalm 119, 169. And look what happens. He's proclaiming the virtue of the Word, the good of the Word, the power of the Word. And suddenly he goes, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your Word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your Word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your Word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you. And the psalm concludes with this explosion of praise and worship. Why? He's been in the Word. And the Word yields the worship of God. I love it. So the path. We're on the path, right? We talked about. Your Word is a lamp for my feet, a light to my path. That path that you've chosen to walk on. The path that leads us to the Lord. And in this path, we are singing shouts of hallelujah, shouts of praise. Verse 111, For I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Literally, I have taken your testimonies for my heritage. That's the way the King James translates it, and it's, it's very accurate in the original language. Thy testimonies have I taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. What he's saying here is, that's my inheritance. You guys can have the farm and the horses and the animals and the cars and the money in the bank. I want the Word of God. I want your testimonies, Lord. That is my inheritance. How does that work? What exactly does that mean? See if you can track this with me. The word testimonies is a da. 
Adah is a solemn declaration of consequences. A solemn declaration of consequences. I'll tell you what I want for my heritage are the consequences promised to me in the Word of God. What are those? Salvation, number one. Eternal salvation, living forever with Jesus, is the consequence of the path you choose. Path of depravity, no salvation. The path of delight in the Lord, you are headed on the road to salvation. You are going to be saved. In fact, what's great is wherever you're on the path to the Lord, anywhere along that path, if you're just on the path, you're saved. You're good to go. You might be 50 years walking with Jesus in passion and intimacy, loving the Lord way down toward the end of the path, and you're going to be saved. Or you may be that person who one split second said, Yes, I believe you are my Savior. And the rapture happens and you're the last one to go up. And some of us are waiting for you. (laughs) It doesn't matter where you are on that path as long as you're on the path. Eternal salvation. You're good to go. Jesus said, Mark 16, 16, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Baptized? Yeah, the, the sign that you have believed. It's your outward profession of the inward decision that you've made. And the pond is awaiting he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Believe and you're saved. Disbelieve and you will be condemned. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. Consequences. The consequence of my decision is my inheritance. And the first and greatest consequence is salvation in the name of Jesus. But there's more. There's more. Got an email just this last week asking about this. Asking, Rick, do you believe that there are different rewards in heaven? And if so, can you prove it? And I wrote back, I do and I can. I do believe that. I didn't used to. Different rewards in heaven. I'm not talking levels, okay? The Mormon church is somewhere else. I'm not talking levels in heaven. I'm talking different kinds of rewards. There is a distinction between who will get what based on what we do. How could you say that? Let me give you some example real quickly. In fact, I didn't put these verses up there because I'd rather you jot them down. Grab a pen. Grab one from someone nearby. Jot these verses down because you need to go back and look at these and think through this. This is a critical aspect of your walk in Jesus. And I'm going to go through these very quickly. In fact, I'm not even going to read the verses. I'll give them to you and explain them. But you go home and check them out. Matthew 25, 14-30. Jesus tells the parable of the talents. In that parable, and it's the first indication that there are different rewards based on what you've done. Parable of the talents. One guy has five talents. One guy has two talents. And one guy has one. And the master gives him and says, take care of this, I'm going away. He goes away. When he comes back, the guy who had five has invested it and now has ten. The guy who had two has invested it and now has four. The guy who had one was scared to death and buried it in a field and made nothing. And each one of them was rewarded according to what they had done in this parable. What is Jesus saying? Hey, one guy has five talents. He's got a lot to give and he's giving and giving and giving and he's investing everything that he has. And you know what? He's not going to end up with five. He's going to get all ten. Another guy has two talents. Not as much as the guy with five, but he's got them and he's investing them and he's going to end up with four. And the guy who had one talent says, oh, I don't know what to do with this. And he's going to end up with nothing. In fact, he won't even be saved. 
The master will boot him outside where there is outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus says in the parable. So you read that and you say, huh, those are different rewards. Based on what people do. Based on behavior. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15. through 15, Paul comes along. And Paul starts to talk about whatever resources you have, use them for the kingdom. And he compares them to some things. He says if you have you know, wood, hay, straw, precious stones, silver, and gold. All of that that you have is going to be tested by fire. And what remains will be a reward. And there's some interesting teaching in that. So if I'm investing in wood, hay, or straw, guess what the fire is going to do? It's going to be gone. It will burn up. There are things that we choose, all of us, I mean, let's be honest, there are things we choose to do in our lives that are going to fry, that are not going to last. You know, I spent, how much did we, 15 months building our house. This edifice of my glory. (laughs) And you know what? It's a pain. Those of you homeowners, you know that. It's not going to last. That thing's going to burn. That's not an eternal thing. That's a temporary tent is what it is. Wood, hay, straw. Think about the three little pigs, you know. (laughs) Precious stones. Silver. Gold. What's that? Human lives. People saved. People who are going to be in heaven because of you. Faith. The way you love, compassion that you show, these are the things that will remain and be strong. But gang, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says the quality of each person's work is going to yield different rewards based on what you do. Someone's going to do this and it's going to be rewarded for that. Someone will do this and be rewarded for that. Do you know the Bible talks about five different crowns? Five different kinds of crowns based on what you're doing. The crown of the soul winner and the crown of the shepherd and there, there are several others. Different rewards. Finally, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-10, through 10, and I, I encourage you all to look these three passages up, pray about it, and consider this. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6-10, through 10, Paul says, we're all going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us. <sighs> Pastor Rick, didn't you say the cross was our judgment and we get to avoid that whole thing? I, I did. We don't go to the what's called the great throne judgment the judgment of all people based on what we do, but we will go before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what's that? Well, Paul describes it as a place where we will be, check this out, recompensed for our deeds. That is not a judgment of salvation. Because the Bible also says we are saved by grace. If I'm saved by grace, then it's not my deeds that have anything to do with it, right? So my first inheritance, my salvation, is solely by the grace of God who loves me. But, in addition to that, once saved, we're all going to show up, and there it is, the judgment seat of Christ. And He'll be seated up there, and you know what He's going to do? He's going to give medals. Well, maybe not literally medals. But the judgment seat, the word is bima in the Greek, and it was the the tiered seat that the judges at athletic games like the Olympics would sit on. And when the race was run and all the runners came out at the end, first, second, third prize would come up onto the tier, onto the bima seat, and receive their rewards. Different gifts based on how you ran the race. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-10 through 10. And Jesus says in Revelation 22:10, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. That's not salvation, again. 
I'm saved by His grace. I am rewarded based on my deeds. Get it? Look those up. If you disagree with me, that's okay. You'll find that I'm right. <laughs> I am just, listen, I'm just repeating to you what Jeremiah called the ancient paths. It's the Word of God. And the answers are there. And it's little lamps for our feet. And it's light for our path all the way out to the end. It's an amazing word. And the Bible says, I've inherited your testimonies forever. They're the joy of my heart. This is something to look forward to. Beyond your eternal salvation, it's like kids looking at presents on a birthday. And going, I don't know what's inside there, but it's going to be good. And I'm excited about that. And it's the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart, verse 12, to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I've inclined my heart. Did you hear that? Not my head. You incline your heart, your head will follow. But I've inclined my heart to your statutes. I was thinking through this whole section here and this path that we're walking on. And realizing that what the psalmist is truly talking about all the way through here with the word and this undercurrent of the pathway we walk is not a code of conduct. It's not a religious code requiring a religious response. This gang, you know what this pathway is talked about in verse 105? It's the path of the prodigal. This is the path of the prodigal. Jesus told the parable in Luke 15. By the prodigal taking his inheritance, it's you know the money and heading out and squandering the whole thing. And Jesus said when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I'm dying here with hunger? I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up on the path. He came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's all he got out. Because the father has already turned around to his slave saying, Quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. The path of the prodigal gang is the path that is talked about here. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. The path I'm walking is the path of the prodigal. But please understand this. It's not the path of the prodigal's love for the father. It is the path of the father's love for the prodigal. The prodigal didn't see it right away. He came to the father and the father's hugging and kissing and embracing him and and lifting him up and holding him and he's trying to get the words out. Oh, father, I've sinned. And I just wonder in that moment, can you imagine the father putting his son out saying, you're alive! And for the first time the son sees, dad still loves me. He loves you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I want to keep this word. Not because of a legalistic sense of religiosity. I want to keep the word because I want to see the love in his eyes. Because that's what his word declares above all other things. I love you. Which path are you going to choose? The one thing that invites us back along that path more than anything else is not our love for him but His love for us. path of the prodigal. And He's shown us the way to go home. Which, which path are you going to choose? 
I would challenge you seriously to think about which path am I even on right now? And if you choose the path to home, how then are you going to walk? You see, I, I see Dad at the gate. And he's gearing up to run for his people. And Father, when that day comes, Lord, it'll be awesome. Father, it's Your Word that tells us what is coming before us. You have lit a light out to the end of the path. And Lord, at the end of the path, we see You there. Like Stephen, who said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. So we now can look ahead and we know You are standing ready, Lord Jesus, to return. Ready to call us to You. Ready to run and embrace us and call us saved. Though though we might say, Lord, just give me a place in the house. Let me serve. I'll just be a hired hand. You have the best for Your people. We praise You for Your love, Your magnificent love. And we pray that You will draw us home along Your path. If you are here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you, I implore you to do it right now as I attempt to proselytize. Would you pray in your heart after me and just say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And I know the way I choose has has gotten me down the wrong path. So this morning I choose Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe You died for my sins on the cross. And I believe and confess this morning You rose from the dead that I might follow You forever in the same way that I might rise and live forever. Be my Lord and be my Savior, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.